Our scripture this morning now turns to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15. You can read in the pew Bibles in front of you. I don't know why I call them pews or chairs, but uh, they're also on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So ends the reading of God's word. For children ages three years old to kindergarten, you're now dismissed to Little Landing. Good morning, faith family at the landing. Let's pray together. Open our eyes, Lord, to wonderful things from your law. Bless us richly with the gift of hearing what we hear and seeing what we see. Pour yourself into us by the word. Stand forth from it that we would see you, worship you, even as we have prayed and sung, now we worship you over the word. Do a saving work in our lives to confirm the salvation you've already begun. Begin a brand new saving work in those lives who now are yet lost. And use even the frail means of preaching and this live stream or even recording after the fact to bring about the salvation of those whom you have appointed to hear. The word, inerrant and powerful, effective and unstoppable in its purpose, preached through a frail, broken sinner like me. Come, Lord Jesus, anoint this act as we join with churches around the world in this 2,000-year-old tradition of remembering Palm Sunday when you revealed yourself as king in Jerusalem and began the long, important closing week of your ministry before the cross. Cause us to love you more worship you more, trust you more, bask in your grace more. Because of these few moments together, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have such an honor and privilege to join with the church historic and celebrate Palm Sunday. The palms mean we are singing, as it were, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Hebrew word Hosanna means Hoshe, salvation, Anna, grace, or God. God saves. It's a prayer, save us God or God saves. The people who first uttered it likely meant it for political or military rescue or deliverance better than they knew. They were prophetically singing, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. So we're fond of saying here at the landing, the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. I once heard a pastor talk about going to his a trusted longtime friend, a member of his church who was dying in the hospital, and he said, 
to him, how are you doing? And the, the great saint dying in his hospital bed said, oh, I'm okay. You know, pastor, the greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. I hope I talk like that when some of you come see me when it's my turn to die. That's why that phrase is so precious to me and why I want it to become defining for us as a church. I want this church to be all about the glory of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what this passage Kevin just read is all about. That's what Palm Sunday is all about. We want to proclaim to the world and to you and myself and all who would hear the salvation that's found in Christ alone. The salvation that's found for sinners, whoever would repent of their sin, turn away and come call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. There is no sin that can keep you from trusting in Jesus Christ. You can come out of Islam and all its error and violence and horror and you can be saved. You can be a Christian killer in the name of Allah, a false god, and you can be saved. You can come out of political secrecy and corruption and repent of political sin, and you can be saved. You can come out of adultery and all manner of sexual sin, and you will be forgiven, and you can be saved. You can have started a war, and you can repent of that sin and be saved if you will come and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. You can live all your life going to church and think so high, lofty, proud, arrogant, self-righteous thoughts of yourself and others, and you can come and be saved and forgiven of that too. There is no sin that is greater than the power of the salvation we proclaim. We proclaim the salvation that is greater than all sin could ever conceivably be. We proclaim a Christ who died on the cross with such infinite worth and power and love that there isn't enough time in history or persons committing sin to overwhelm the infinite value of the cross. The greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. The Corinthian church that Paul is writing to and this passage is addressed to near the end of the letter was full of confusion over sexual matters and money matters, over the Lord's Supper and over church discipline and how spiritual gifts should function and a whole host of other things. They were confused. They didn't understand how to function in the church. So what does Paul do as a wise apostle guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? He brings them back to the foundational matters of life. He brings them back to the gospel read for us by Kevin in 1 Corinthians 15, especially the first 11 verses. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that drives every healthy church, every healthy marriage, every healthy family, and every healthy ministry. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ we come back to over and over again because it's the answer to every conflict. It's the answer to every difficult question. It's the answer to every sinful, uh, embedded, entrenched pattern of life that seems unbreakable. The gospel is the solution to every issue you're struggling with right now, no matter what it is. And I know I'm speaking not just to the people in this room, but through live stream to a whole host of people. I don't know, but God knows, and he's prophetically going to use his word to free you from your burdens and bondages by the power of the gospel. Why? Because of Revelation 14, verse 6. John writing says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel. With an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, and language, and people. 
Why is the gospel the solution for every struggle, conflict, and difficulty? It's the solution because it's an eternal gospel. It was achieved in the mind and plan of God from before the foundations of the world. It was enacted in history climactically at the death and resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate this Holy Week beginning today. And its effects are going to unfold into the eternity of the future and we will celebrate and sing and worship the Lord unendingly without boredom and without flagging and without tiredness or sickness or ending, singing before his throne forever by sustaining grace, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. (laughs) That's the heaven I hold out to you, that's the heaven I can't await to arrive in. And that's the heaven that this thick passage Kevin just read means to bring you into if you do not yet know Christ. And if you do, may this passage renew and inflame and ignite and heighten the Fahrenheit of your passion for the gospel of our salvation such that you will not only savor your salvation but spread it far and wide beyond what you ever could have imagined yourself boldly speaking before. Three threes is my outline. Three threes. Yeah, I know that makes nine points. Three threes. Nobody should preach a nine-point sermon. So I'm going to go fast. Three threes. Three touch points. Three true facts. And three proofs. Let's go quickly. First, three touch points. You can see them as I read verses one and two. Look at the copy of the scriptures with me on the screen or in your hand. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here are the three touch points right off the bat that Paul says at the beginning of chapter 15 to remind the Corinthians and us how the gospel has already touched us. Here they are. You heard and received the message proclaimed, number one. You stand in it and are being saved, number two. And you must hold fast as you are held fast to show genuine saving faith. Those are the three touch points. Paul summarizes those touch points by going all the way down to the end of our passage, verse 11. Jump down there with your eye. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul says it must be proclaimed. The gospel is first and foremost a message proclaimed and a message heard. A message to be preached and a message to be believed. A message to be conveyed and offered a message to be received. Believing here is not a mere assent to intellectual facts. It's not just that I can sign off and agree with certain doctrines. Nor is it merely a personal relationship with Christ where the doctrine doesn't really matter. Both of those have harmed American churches and probably the churches you and I grew up in. Both are mistakes because they are important but insufficient. The believing here is a believing in the biblical Christ. We have to get our doctrine right. And with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength, there must then be a genuine relationship of joy and of love. Both are necessary. That's the believing that Paul has in mind when he talks about the touch point of the gospel. You should say to yourself, do I love the biblical Christ as he is or a counterfeit 
And do I love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? This receiving of Christ is a precious reality that is ongoing. Did you notice in verses 1 and 2? You are being saved, he says. This is an ongoing experience of salvation. In which you stand, he says, and verse 2, and by which you are being saved. The idea is that your salvation isn't something that you take care of in the past and that you continue on leaving it as something that has happened a long time ago. It's your daily, hour-by-hour, moment-by-moment enjoyment of your relationship with God in Christ. You're being saved. It's an ongoing reality. Test yourself. Am I enjoying right now the experience of being saved? Then the third touch point is the idea that you hold it fast so that you would not believe in vain. He doesn't mean that some people can hold on and truly be saved and then lose it have their belief in vain. No, no. He means rather what you find all through the rest of Scripture, that it's possible to have a false and defective belief. James chapter 2 says, there's a kind of faith that doesn't lead to real fruit, real works of fruit. Don't think that faith will save, James says. It doesn't, James 2.14. Rather, Paul says, let your life, let your fruitfulness of your life Confirm the fact that you genuinely believed when you believed. Let your life bear the fruit that befits repentance, as John the Baptist said. These are touch points. These are precious touch points. The gospel goes out, I receive it. I'm living in it day by day. I'm standing in it and being saved. And I have fruit being born in my life which demonstrates that I'm no phony. I'm not like those first three soils that didn't end up being saved. I'm like the fourth soil. I receive the word and it bursts forth in good, fruitful growth in my life. I can't help but think about one of my favorite modern hymns. We sing it here at the landing and I'm so grateful that we do. Written by Ada, Ruth, Habershon, and Matthew Merker. Listen to these words. You'll recognize them. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. You see, the Christian life is this picture of you and I saying, Lord, I bring my sin to you. I receive from you my righteousness, your righteousness, and take it as my own. And in your righteousness, I am going to work. I'm going to strive. I'm going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. That's the fruitfulness of my life. Even though I struggle with sin, I I hate it and I want to turn from it. And I want to pursue the righteousness that you have purchased for me. And even that hatred of sin and loving of righteousness is fruit. It's fruit. It's what shows, not that I'm perfect, oh, far from it but that I'm striving and agonizing and pursuing the righteousness that you have already purchased for me. I am conquering already forgiven sin. I am not seeking to do good works to earn my favor with you. I have not earned it. I've received it by the good works of another, Jesus Christ. But out of those good works that I stand in, I want to make my life match my identity. I want you to see me as a whole, my outside and my inside, my standing and my striving in match with each other. 
So his promise is, to all those whom I have saved, I will hold you in the palm of my hand. No one will snatch you from my hand. I will, I will cling to you. I will hold you fast. Even as you hold me fast, your holding me fast causes me to hold you fast, precious Lord. Three touch points. Now, three facts of the gospel. This is maybe the most famous statement of the gospel in the Bible. Look at verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul proclaims to the Corinthians what he calls of first importance. This is what I said earlier, the most foundational, the most important message because it's eternal past, present, and future and because it is the foundational truth in the Bible about which the Bible teaches fully and effectually all that we need to know for salvation. Everything in the Old Testament leads up to it. Everything in the New Testament cascades down from it. The gospel is the centerpiece of all of Scripture, in fact, of all reality. I want you to be able to come to the Lord's worship at the landing every first day of the week, every Sunday, and hear something of the gospel. I want to come to every marriage, every funeral. I want to come to every gathering. I want every day, I want every hour, I want every event of life, every, every delightful birth and, and every sorrowful death. I want it all to be revolving around the very center gravitational mass of the gospel holding everything else in its perfect orbit. The gospel is for Paul of first importance. It is for me and for the landing and for the elders here and trust for you of first importance. Everything about your life aligns itself perfectly when the gospel is the centerpiece of your life. As soon as every other issue pushes its way into the center of your thinking, your life will begin to wobble out of orbit immediately. Three facts embedded in these two verses. First, Christ died according to the Scriptures. This is the essential proclamation of the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world to live a sinless life in order that the fully God, fully man, Lord Jesus Christ, might die upon the cross. The fact is, in history, there was a time and a place where individuals actually brutalized, crucified, and hung Jesus Christ the, the God-man upon the cross. And why did he die? We're told by Paul he died for our sins. Or as Galatians 1.3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Peter says the same in 1 Peter 2. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Christ didn't make salvation possible. He achieved real salvation for all who believe when he died upon the cross. Suppose you're an international aid worker and you have been invited to travel from your city or nation to Russia and go to Russia in the depths of Russia to speak a word and help uh, give aid to Ukrainian refugees who have been taken from Ukraine and held in camps in Russia, of which I just read yesterday. 
and you're an international aid worker going into these camps of Ukrainian refugees, knowing the war is raging, knowing the military and leadership of Russia caused the war, and you're right in the middle of Ukrainian refugees in the nation of Russia held in camps there. And you want to be of some help to them, so after you provide blankets and medicine and food and water and other necessities, you go up to those Ukrainian refugees and in a language they can understand, you proclaim, be free, be free. And they look at you saying, what in the world are you talking about? But what if you said, I've made arrangements with your captors. I will take your place and then you will be free. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came and upon the cross took our place. He took our sin. He bore our sins upon the cross. And in substitutionary atonement, he bore our place and said, Now your sins are forgiven. Now you're free from God's wrath against the guilt of your sin. Now death has been conquered in your life. And now you may be free indeed. The second fact, Christ was buried He didn't just walk away or trade places with John the Baptist or swoon and then revive from being fainted in the grave. No, he was buried in the grave. John 19 records the events. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. A dead body is what Joseph took. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh, aloes, and about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus had a body, and his body was killed upon the cross, and his spirit flew to paradise as he promised the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. And his body was covered in linen, filled with 75 pounds of spices, and buried in a rich man's tomb. There his body began to decay. Jesus really died. He was really buried, and he really lay dead in a tomb for three days. Against all error, against all heresies, against all lies that are lurking about in this age and in the ages previous and surely shall lurk until Christ returns, Christ came and took on a body, clothed himself in human flesh, lived in that body, suffered in that body, and now lay dead, decaying in a tomb in that body. Fact number three. By the power of God, he was raised from the dead. Matthew records this powerfully in chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place 
where he lay. Jesus' spirit and body on the morning of the third day were joined back together in one sovereign moment when the power of God and the spirit of Christ united and awakened and renewed to life, not just back to life, but to an never-dying resurrection body, the body of Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man. The spices, the shroud linen around him, the grave clothes, the dark air, the cool air in the tomb, the smell of a decaying body, the stone rolled away, and in that second, the power of God causes the body now filled with the Spirit of Christ again to breathe air. In comes a breath. The resurrection is the breath born of Christ, dead fully for three days, truly and actually dead, and yet by the miracle of the resurrection is raised, not resuscitated like he did for Lazarus, where Lazarus, poor guy, has to die again, but raised to a resurrection body that will never die. And the promise that we'll enjoy for the rest of this week and celebrate on Resurrection Sunday is that we too will be raised to such newness of life with Christ. Three facts. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and died in the tomb for three days. And he was raised by the power of God And he lives ever for eternity, never to die again. And he reigns today. Three proofs of this astounding, stunning, astonishing gospel. This gospel by which we are saved. This gospel by which scholars call us ridiculous for believing in the bodily resurrection of Christ. This gospel for which so many people would rather believe in so many other things. We believe in the precious resurrection of Jesus Christ and bank our hope and lives upon it. Three proofs of it. You've already seen one repeatedly. Back in verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happened according to the Scriptures. According to the scriptures, he has in mind, of course, passages in the Old Testament like Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Old Testament promises and prophesies over and over the death of Jesus Christ and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ in passages like Psalm 16, 9, and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. The Bible teaches that Christ was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead The Bible is the proof. You have to say that the Bible is lying to deny Christ's death and resurrection. And for those whom I have read and listened to who say that Christ didn't really raise from the dead or wasn't really raised from the dead bodily, they actually do twist the scriptures and they end up becoming enemies of the Bible, enemies of God, enemies of the gospel and of all that is good 
Oh, woe to us who undermines and denies or becomes embarrassed or ashamed of the miracle and the power of Christ rising from the dead. The second proof, eyewitnesses. Look at verses 5 through 7. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. This is the Apostle Paul giving us a second proof. Jesus appeared to these skeptical apostles. They weren't full of faith saying, we're going to huddle around the tomb and we're going to watch. Any second now, Jesus, come on, popping out. No, no, no. They were shocked, skeptical, astounded, fearful even that Christ was raised from the dead. They didn't fully understand that what he'd been teaching all along is that he came to die, he came to be buried, and he came to rise again from the dead. They were so amazed that they had been transformed in their being. You can tell the difference in someone like Cephas referring to Peter here or someone like James as he refers to later in the paragraph or the other 12 apostles all together. These are men transformed by the fact that they had seen the risen Christ. They went on to become martyrs for this glorious truth and they would not die for some imaginary idea that they had cooked up and concocted into some hoax that they wanted to foist on the world. No one would die for such a thing, but nor would they die for some collective hypnosis, as if some duping or imaginary, uh, imaginary idea had been pressed into their minds. No, the, the resurrection of Christ, which had happened 20 to 25 years before Paul was writing 1 Corinthians, was fresh in their minds, and they knew it and believed it and were willing to die for it, and all of them did eventually. It's as fresh in their minds and they were convinced of it as you and I are convinced that 9-11 actually happened. 9-11 for the United States is about as long ago today as the resurrection was at the time of Paul's writing. I know 9-11 happened. And maybe there's even people you could talk to in New York who experienced the effects of 9-11. Well, Paul says there were 500 to whom Christ appeared at one time and some of them are still alive, so you could go to Jerusalem and have a conversation with them, and you could find out from them what it was like to experience the power of the resurrection of the Son of God. These are proofs that Paul is giving. He's offering them. He's saying, look at the lives of the apostles. Look at the message that they were willing to die for. Look at the effect that their dying and martyrdom had on the spread of the church throughout the known world. Look at the fact that these 500 and many others were willing to say, yes, I saw Jesus Christ rise from the dead. He, in fact, is alive. What a testimony. What a cause for you to believe. What a reason for you to proclaim the gospel to people that may be skeptical or doubtful. Thoughtful, careful, wise, truth-loving people will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength because of these proofs. And yet there's a third and last one. Paul offers himself. He gives his own biography, his own personal testimony as a compelling proof. Look at verses 8 through 10. Last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. He's talking about his Damascus Road experience. And he says untimely born because of the timing he was born after living in such a time that he didn't come to Christ until after Christ had died and risen again. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, 
unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is a biography. This is personal testimony. This is evidence for you and I to believe with all our might that God would, could and was pleased to take Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, hating Christians because they were perverting his Jewish religion and thinking himself pleasing God and worshiping God by killing those Christians wherever he could find them and holding on to the coats and handing the stones that would be thrown at Christians' heads, watching them die by stoning in approval while he was yet lost in sin. He calls himself unworthy to be called an apostle, least of the apostles, because he persecuted the church of God. This is the first Middle East terrorist. Thought he was pleasing God by killing Christians. This is the guy who you would think would be the very last person to become a Christian in his day. You think of the very last person you can think of who would become a Christian in your life and start praying for that person. You think of on the world stage, the person who's least likely to become a Christian and start praying for that person. The Apostle Paul was the least likely person to bow the knee and call on the name of the Lord and repent of his sin and be saved. And yet, he says, the grace of God toward me was not in vain. This grace, this powerful, amazing, precious grace that Christ purchased by his death, confirming by his burial, and declaring in the heavenly realms and, all, and to all who will see by his resurrection, this grace works powerfully. Oh yes, it's pardon for sin. Grace is pardon for all the murders you've committed, Paul. Grace is pardon for all the good things you left undone. It's pardon for all the dark heart of emotions that seethe inside you of hatred and of murder and of death. But it's much more than pardon. Grace is also power. This blood-bought, breath-born, body-raised grace not only forgives Paul of his sins, but it empowers him to work harder than all the rest of the apostles, to work out his salvation with fear and trembling, to bear the fruit that befits repentance, as we saw earlier in the paragraph. This grace is both pardon and power. Pardon for sin and power to live a life victoriously, and ever more righteous like Christ. In this culture, we don't say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That sounds weak. That sounds thin. That sounds religious and cheap. It sounds complicated and mystical and pious. We say, by my education, I am what I am. Or by my family roots, I am what I am. Or by my job, I am what I am. Or by my ministry, I am what I am. Or by my suffering and trauma, I am what I am. Or by my successes, I am what I am. What do you say? 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul is stunned by this grace. His identity, his ethnic and religious background, the whole world, the law, everything he was giving his life to, everything he was trained in, he counted it all as rubbish. He conceives of God and the law. He conceives of time and history and all persons, Jew and Gentile. He perceives of himself and all realities under the great banner of grace now because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has purchased that grace for him. So he says, I work and I labor, but not to earn anything from God. I've received it all by faith in Christ. I work and labor to show him with great joy that his work in my life is not in vain, but absolutely successful. Praise his holy name. You should have welling up inside you a desire to say, Lord, I have all this sin that I carry around and I want to give it to you. I'm guilty of more sin than I can imagine. There's heart sin and thought sin. There's word sin and sins I've committed and all kinds of good things I've left undone. This all like a pile of manure I want to give to you and be rid of it once and for all. Take it from me. And then I want to labor and strive with the Muscles that grace gives me to work out my salvation with fear and trembling for you are at work in me to cause me to will and to do your good pleasure. I want this eternal grace that Christ bought for me to continue causing me to stand and live in this amazing grace. I want you to cause my salvation to be real and I don't want to be a phony and I don't want to ever think that my struggles with sin, momentary and temporary they may be, are not proof that I am a phony. In fact, by the way I hate them and flee from them and cry out for your righteousness, I have confidence that I'm yours. Can you say with Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am? Are you stunned by grace? I'm stunned by grace. I used to be stunned by grace, but I've lived more life and I'm stunned all the more by grace because he's held me for so long and he's forgiven me for so much. And the confidence I have in a passage like this is I am ready to go to the very ends of the world, the ends of obedience, whatever that looks like, and his grace will meet me there. His grace will remain within me. His grace will power me from behind. His grace will overshadow me and undergird me, and he'll do that for you as well today and every day until he returns. And oh, you can tell if you have too small a view of grace, if you think it's only needed for this life, Grace isn't just pardon for the sins of this life, but when you and I get to heaven, grace by its power will enable us to worship the Lord with ever-increasing joy and glory for eternity. Why? We know it because Revelation 14.6 says this gospel is an eternal gospel. Another transformed individual, the great blasphemer John Newton, hymn writer and pastor in England in the 1700s, writing maybe the world's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was commenting on Mark 16, 16, He who believes shall be saved. And listen to what Newton says. Saved in defiance of all the opposition of earth and hell. Saved notwithstanding we are in ourselves, unstable as water, weak as a bruised reed, and helpless as a newborn babe. What Jesus will give, none can take away. Only remember it is a free gift. Receive it thankfully and rejoice in the giver. Let him have all the glory of his own undertaking. Renounce every other hope and every other plea but his promise and mediation. Commit your souls to him and then 
fear nothing. The greatest thing in all the world is to be saved. Let's pray. God, I thank you for Newton, and I thank you for the Apostle Paul and Holy Scripture. I thank you for Palm Sunday and the salvation that you achieved when you came into Jerusalem on that Holy Week. Thank you for the cross, the empty tomb, and your raised and reigning power and glory. Be exalted in our lives as we savor for ourselves right now this grace that you have purchased for us to live in, to stand in, to bear fruit by. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for it in Paul and in me and in each who know and love you here. May all those yearning and desiring this grace but having not yet tasted it to the full ask you for it right now. Let nothing else take precedence but the personal heart-to-heart piercing conversation with you by which they say, Lord, pour out on me afresh your saving grace. Thank you, Lord, so much for this passage and now for our response to it in the singing of these song, in this song. May you be glorified in the way your grace achieves its good work in our lives. Through Christ, I pray. Amen. Let's